She thumps a cane and drinks champagne She's formidable and judgmental But we can guarantee That she's a quintessential Lady D But recognizes great potential What would Danbury do? Welcome to What Would Danbury Do? A podcast about the Bridgerton series from A to V. It's time for another bonus episode. This week, we're taking on British imperialism. Dr. Javaria Faruqi is an academic teaching at Comsat's University in Pakistan. Javaria conducts research on popular genre romance, with a special focus on reading culture in Pakistan. In April, she wrote a really interesting article about the frustrations some Pakistani audiences experienced during this latest season of Bridgerton. Now, she joins Kate to explain a little more about British imperialism, Bridgerton, and the Sharma phenomenon. Don't forget, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook as at BridgertonPod and Instagram as WWDDPod. And join the conversation using hashtag WWDDPod. So I realize that this is an absolutely unfair question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. What does it mean when we say British imperialism? Okay, I decided to go for a very broad definition of British imperialism because it still means a lot of things for people who are living in Pakistan. So in Pakistan, we have this broad historical perception uh, schema, sort of, uh, that works for the layman. We refer to generally the process of colonization, the British empirical rule in India overall as the subcontinent. And that's what we mean when we say British imperialism, the process that started with the arrival of East India Company and how, uh, you know, they started the process of manipulation, etc. And of course, uh, it ended up with the formal rule of the crown and ultimately the separation of countries into India and Pakistan and um, later Bangladesh. Yeah, I hope that covers it. But British imperialism, broadly speaking, would be uh, the process uh, whereby the Indians in the subcontinent, they were colonized. Their resources, the resources of this, uh, this land, they were exploited, the people were exploited, and it's a long history of what happened to us. <laughs> <laughs> right. So if we talk about the British colonial period in South Asia, so in that subcontinent, about what time period are we looking at? Okay, if I'll go academically, there would be different dates, right? So for some, the imperialism would start the day... East India Company set foot in the subcontinent and how they gained uh, significance and how they gained the political control, how they got involved in the politics. And of course, it was a time when people here, the governments here, they weren't really very strong. So that sort of like gave them way and uh, it it sort of like started (laughs) over for us, right? So roughly it can be 1857, uh, where there was this first uh, battle for independence. So after that, the empirical rule 
became sort of like highlighted, it got refined. Uh, but of course, it can start with the arrival of East India Company. After 1857, the British Empire got control of whatever East India Company was doing. And we officially became part of the British Empire. Mm. So the East India Company, mm-hmm. I'm going to use the word arrived, but yeah. I mean, obviously, you've just yeah. proved how nuanced that conversation actually is right. um, in the early 1600s. So yes, around yes. 1608, and then essentially had a massive presence in yeah. the subcontinent all the way up until the 1940s. Yes. I want to talk about how that period didn't end, I guess, in the 1940s Mm. and how having been under British control for that long has actually continued on all the way up to present day. Can you speak a little bit about what what the effects have been for a post-colonial subcontinent in this? Okay, I would go by the traditional passage and talk about a very famous quotation by Lord Babington Macaulay. And... (laughs) academics in the field of post-colonial studies would know that by heart. So what Macaulay said was that our aim in British India, he has his famous minutes on education. So he said that our aim is to create a body of people that are brown in color and uh, they are uh, British in every other way that counts, right? And another one of his very famous saying is that um, a single book of English uh, is more important and more uh, significant than all the books in Persian and uh, Oriental knowledges, right? And they actively worked on it. It's a nuanced conversation because uh, there are people who said that actually the wording of Macaulay's speech was very important, but actually that that didn't happen as he said it is supposed to happen, right? But again, uh, the wording is important and it still holds true and people keep on quoting that because you would see the after effects, uh, you know, the remnants of British empire in every system, specifically our bureaucracy. So um, a knowledge of English is essentially a knowledge of English language and culture and tradition. And when I say English, I mean I mean it in a broad sense. So now we have a very uh, sort of like contrived, uh, convoluted definition of what imperialism would mean for us. And we have included the Americans in it as well, right? So in the general layman understanding, of course, that's not something you could you'd be able to explain <laughs> to. Um, academically, but that's that's very much there. For example, we have sort of like conflated uh, the Victorian and the Regency and um, all those eras. So we just talk about the old British fields, right? And for us, the old British fields translate as um, British mannerism, uh, everything that's uh, that has a certain, um, uh, let's say, refinement, sophistication, and definitely, most importantly, socio-economic class. So, if a person has certain manners and graces, they are they are, you know, it's it's it has stopped being a concept about um, money and power hegemony. So, and it has spilled over to the concept of uh, refinement and class. So if you are coming from uh, the word I've used in my thesis frequently is Khandani, right? 
So if you have a knowledge about uh, a specific culture and of course, how that culture is defined is more um, more of a British thing. It's closer to that. And that's one of the reasons um, women reading Regency historical romances in uh, the upper uh, upper middle class households in uh, the urban centers of Pakistan, they are they are they relate to the Regency and they relate to the British Empire and everything. But again, <laughs> it has so many other aspects. And of course, uh, the thing has still continued because you know you just look around and you'll see the influence of British imperialism. It's in the system of class, it's in the social structures. So reading English fiction and reading English fiction for layerly purposes, like the popular English fiction. So the popular romances, they change their coding when they enter Pakistan, right? Because it's an acquired taste. You get that for generations. If your mother, your aunts and everybody has been reading Regency historical romances, not all genres. So that, that's it's a certain sort of like an instant bonding because you understand where the other person is coming from. That's a really good point. And it also transitions really neatly to our yeah. overarching discussion, which is to yeah. talk about the British and India and Bridgerton all together. This Bridgerton series takes place in the 1810s. What did South Asia look like at that moment? What, I suppose, what were the Sharmas leaving behind when they left India in 1813? Technically, historically, there would be families, uh, very influential families, who would have the kind of, um, let's say, the kind of uh, liberties and the kind of uh, freedom for travel and um, the social reach that the Sharmas have, right? But it would be, again, the tricky part is when their father is supposed to be a clerk because such positions, they were only given to people who had lots of money. So it's very difficult for <laughs> one of the reasons why uh, the inclusion of uh, Kate Sharma is because it's very difficult to understand how a person of this stature got involved with the socioeconomic elite in England. That's That's, that's something that's really i mean historically it can be correct but it's very difficult to digest for in the general perception specifically if the father is shown to be the clerk sorry i'd like to dig down a little bit deeper into this it actually is a question i had further on but let's talk about it right now (laughs) so in the in the story that we're being presented with mrs sharma meets mr sharma in london somewhere Mm-hmm. Um, and then they go back to India. She's married beneath her. And that's why she's sort of cut off from her family. Yes. And he's a clerk for one of the Indian royal families. Am I understanding correctly when you say that actually, in order to be a clerk in that family, he would have had to have a level of prestige and wealth in order to get that position? Um, historically speaking, it would be correct. But that's a position that would still be a position of prestige that would be allowed to very, very few people. So this concept that she married beneath her might be true in a British sense, but would not have been true in in India at the time. 
Yeah, I mean, there are, there are, there is always uh, it depends. Of so, course, yeah. <laughs> so there's this it depends, and there would be people who would um, have evidence, but that's definitely not something that was very common, according to the kind of history that I've been exposed to, and the people in my region, let's say the current Pakistan, have been exposed to. It's easier for us probably to understand that Asharma would be a Hindu, right? as we have been exposed to in the books of pakistan studies the hindus they had less difficulty in interacting with the british because the muslims they were more tight clad about and they saw the british as how do i explain it because they were very very sad about uh, the loss of their heritage and everything so they had a more difficult time in connecting with the british and they thought them to be everything against their religion and everything, right? So the Hindus, yes, they were more advanced and they were more welcoming and they got um, included in the British circles earlier than the Muslims of the land. And of course, there were so many religions, so many castes and I mean, it's a very rich uh, study for whoever would like to delve deeper into it. So the charm is look and act the part of aristocrats when they land in London. They're also looking and acting the part of British aristocrats. What would the upper classes have looked like? How would that have differed um, in their life in Mumbai as opposed to their new lives in London? So the first difference would be the dresses. People from this part of the subcontinent, they usually prefer to dress up even when they moved to England or they were mingling with the aristocracy over there. Uh, So in the photographs, you'll see them wearing the same dresses they would back home. And the mannerism, uh, interestingly, one of the reasons why people relate to so much to it would be the mannerism and uh, the general uh, social structure would remain the same. There won't be any differences, at least. And one of the reasons why people relate so much to the Regency England is because, uh, as many, many would say, and you would see in the adaptations of Austen's fiction as well, that we are still living in that era. We haven't evolved that much. So we do have the tight uh, demarcations between uh, classes. So an aristocratic class, it would be a family, an elite family would behave pretty much in the same way that a British elite family would. But of course, there would be the uh, difference of, um, as far as I've learned from the history books, can we talk about um, the courtship rituals? So obviously, Kate has schooled Edwina to be attractive to what would be considered a British um, aristocratic marriage with her accomplishments and the things that she needed to learn, speak yeah. French, play music, etc. How would the courtship rituals have differed in Mumbai at the time to London? I mean, still... In some families, the courtship rituals are very, very different from and not so different from the British uh, Regency courtship rituals. The meet cute, it always happens in the presence of family. There has to be escorts around still. Um, And even if like only the more aristocratic families would allow the couple to talk to each other. And that too, in strict, um, when somebody's around, right? It's not something that would 
happen on its own. They cannot just roam around and have a, a you know, date or something, go on a date and get to know each other. That 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 part doesn't really count. What still counts, uh, and we have lots of arranged marriages, right? And we have heaps of cousin marriages. So um, first cousins marrying into each other, marrying into the family. It's it's something that's that's very uh, unusual in the Anglosphere, but it's very much our everyday reality, right? So, and then the courtship rituals, they are, they're very strict, extremely strict. So probably, uh, and more, um, that's why we can relate more to the Regency perhaps, right? So yes, the courtship rituals, if they have uh, shown them to be difficult, uh, we probably have them and they used to have it even more difficult. So the most important, the four most important thing would be your background your family connection, who you are, who you were. And then second important thing would be who you are now in terms of money and in terms of um, your current uh, status, right? So if you don't have that kind of money anymore, sometimes it doesn't really matter. But of course, if you have money, that's, that's going to be an extra added plus. And then come the question of looks how you look, right? A woman is supposed to look a certain way. And that's that's the point where people would find it um, difficult to perhaps uh, have a Kate Sharma because the general concept is that a woman is supposed to, a marriageable and essentially marriageable woman is supposed to be of a fair complexion. She is supposed to be slim. She is supposed to have manners and graces. And that particularly translates as being quiet all the time. Um, So, yeah, if you're quiet and if you have manners and if you can, um, we have a phrase, uh, (laughs) I'm not sure I can talk about it, but uh, we call it the level of shit tolerance, right? Um, so the higher your level of shit tolerance is, uh, the more um, <laughs> the more marriageable you are considered, because that would mean that you'd be able to survive in a patriarchal joint family system, and you'd be getting you know lots of you'd be tolerating your husband, you'd be tolerating your in laws, you'd be tolerating a lot of things, and all the relatives from your side, from his side, from your ancestors' side, and um, yeah, globally. <laughs> so yes, these are the qualities that are considered marriageable. And apart from that, the education, uh, the girl has to be reasonably educated. Now the reasonably educated uh, has, again, it's a very nuanced conversation because reasonably educated for some would mean that uh, the person has a graduate degree or sometimes below graduation is I mean, that's that's sort of like how you, it's more like how you fix the volume of voice, right? Sometimes you, you know, the up the bass and lower the volume and that sort of thing, right? So if all the other ticks are there, then you can lower down the education. If um, the other ticks are lesser, uh, so you up the education, that sort of thing. So it's a mix and match. And uh, with reference to education, the educational institute and the choice of subject that also matters a lot 
So it's very easy to understand the set of accomplishments that any woman in Regency is exposed to is pretty much the same set of accomplishment loosely translated uh, to the current Pakistani society. What I'm understanding from this is that Kate Sharma is in fact very unmarriageable. Yeah, she is. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's how they play it in the Regency um, uh, like in the popular romance regencies, right? So you you would have uh, that um, uh, character, you would have that main character, the heroine, who would be facing all the things that a Pakistani woman would be facing today. And she would be showing, like, the things are still there. So it's something you can relate to. And then she would be rising above them, showing something that can happen, Right. So that's that's your um, imagination. That's your chance, right? That's your possibility. That's uh, a happily ever after for you. Hmm. If you had had the opportunity to speak to the producers at Bridgerton about what you would have liked to have seen in this particular season, um, is there any piece of advice or any thought that you might have liked to have shared with them? I would like them to think about the aspect of um, the people in um, actual South Asian countries, not the diaspora, right? So when the producers, and that's not just the case with Brigitte, that's the case with most of the other productions as well, that when you they are including, they are not including the actual South Asians, they are including the South Asians who are not exactly South Asians, who are just different in color, who are actually Americans or who are actually British and, right, they have migrated, they have become part of their community. So they are, they are in many ways, they are also not us, right? I can understand that uh, we are not uh, the people of this region because there's a lot of piracy involved and there is a lot of um, international gimmicks involved and all that stuff right so the dodgy websites and all that stuff so pakistan would not be generating the kind of revenue that would make them look at um us as south asians i'm sure that india would be generating more revenue but still the idea is that you can just think about your audience if you have a chance and it doesn't involve so much money so think about the actual south asians as well how they respond to things and how they would like to be included. I mean, it's it's a very tricky thing and I, I can't see that happening. I think you're running into the problem that we often have in our conversations about the show yeah. in that it's hard to add nuance to the show yeah. because the show tends to just bulldoze through everything in pursuit yes. of the story yes. that it wants to tell. Right. And uh, uh, the conversations that we had on casual Facebook groups, uh, on uh, Regency historical romances and popular fiction and all that stuff, right? Uh, the groups where I collected my data from, over there, the uh, some readers, they just loved the idea of Kate Sharma on screen, Right they did not care they don't they still don't care about the historical precision and accuracy and everything for them it was so important to see somebody who looked like them 
on screen. That was very, very important. Uh, I actually loved a comment where the person said that I don't care whether there was a Sharma or whether she was a Sonia or whoever that was, but I, I like the idea that somebody is making an effort to make a heroine that's a person of color. And again, <laughs> so on the side, you had conversation where people were furious about uh, destroying their world of imagination. So they were like, if we, I mean, uh, for them, it was very difficult to understand. And they called it the uh, Masala Sharma. Masala Sharma would be um, everything that um, the producers would have thought should be Indian and inclusive was put into there with no clue about historical accuracy and everything. And they were like, they were, they were just, uh, you know, out of their minds about it. And they were like, we won't forgive you for destroying the beautiful world of uh, romances for us. Because that's an escape, right? And they clearly say that if we want to read about our indigenous stories, we would go find some original story. Why would we like a forced inclusion? So that's there as well. So there, again, it depends on where you are coming from and what type of things you are going to see. Again, because of the inclusion debates and the diversity debates, it's very difficult uh, for people to respond to, because if you're going to talk about the misalification on uh, of Kate Sharma, there are people who are, I mean, you need to accept and you need to acknowledge the views of uh, people who are invested in the series, who are invested in this tro- uh, these tropes and who are invested in the genre. So uh, when I wrote about it, um, I wrote that newspaper article, um, there were people who were very furious and there were people who were like, yes, somebody finally said that. So I think <laughs> we need to have a more nuanced conversation around the inclusion, how it feels to the people of color. My true sense on it would be that if you want to include somebody, it should be a more nuanced inclusion. It shouldn't be, you know, on surface inclusion. But again, when I'm talking about it, I need to understand that I'm not the audience for Brigitte. I'm not even the target audience for Anglophone Regency popular fiction. The expression misalification, it just says so much about, I think, the way that Bridgerton has approached race inclusion in the stories. And I think what you've said about the different way that people have responded is really interesting as well, because certainly we're having this conversation because, you know, on our podcast on what would Danbury do, we're really interested in having those nuanced conversations. But I think it's really important also to remember that not everybody is that there are those who would prefer to just enjoy it as it is and and have and take Mm. and take the win of having people who have been historically excluded from these kind of big budget productions being included even if the inclusion is not um as nuanced as, as some other audiences would prefer i mean i feel that it's just the start how how nuanced an inclusion can be when it has just started, right? So probably with the passage of time, it's going to become more nuanced, but at least it has started. That's all for this bonus episode of What Would Danbury Do? 
Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts because we'll be releasing bonus episodes throughout the season. And of course, we'll be back with Bridgerton episode three, A Bee in Your Bonnet. In the meantime, Dr. Javaria sent us some TV recommendations. Just check the show notes for more details. As always, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook as at Bridgerton Pod and Instagram as WWDD Pod. Or send us an email, BridgertonPod at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. This episode was recorded on the traditional and unceded land of Wurundjeri and Bunurong people and edited by audio producer Rudy Bremer, that's me, on Gadigal Country. Thanks for listening and remember, WWDD. What Would Danbury Do is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.